Hello, it's Gareth here. Welcome along to the Somewhere on Earth podcast. It's Tuesday the 23rd of January 2024. Here we are in our London studio. And uh, with us today is Peter Guest to provide a bit of expertise. And uh, we're talking about water today, aren't we, Peter? And water usage, how it relates to technology. And why does this issue matter to you especially? Well, the very glib answer is that I live on an island and I live by the sea. But I guess the bigger thing is that one of the ways I've tried to think about technology in the last few years is about how it has more than just a digital geography. It has a physical geography. There's a place, there's this places where it pokes above the surface, where you can see it, where it uses energy and critically where it uses water. Right. Okay. And that, I think, is quite a nice teaser into kind of what we're going to get into today. So let's crack on with the main part of the podcast. And coming up in this edition. Yes, indeed, we're doing a whole edition about water because, after all, we hear a lot about energy consumption and about the raw materials behind the tech, goods and services that we all enjoyed. But uh, a bit less on the agenda is water, even though, of course, it's central to generating the electricity in the first place and keeping data centres cool and other technology. So without water, there's no information society, basically. It's the liquid asset, see what I did there, that we all too easily ignore. But not not today, as we discuss, for instance, Bitcoin's ridiculously high water consumption. Not only that, but we're also looking at a prototype portable desalination plant. It's all right here on the Somewhere on Earth podcast. All right, so let's start with Bitcoin. Now, when you make a transaction, you need computing. It turns out you need an awful lot of computing because Bitcoin needs a whole load of computing to mine the coin in the first place. And it's where a powerful computer needs to guess a random number quicker than a whole load of rival powerful computers. So the crypto machines need cooling. And that cooling, of course, in most cases, needs water. How much water for every transaction that you might make on Bitcoin? Could it be, say, half a litre per transaction? Maybe 10 litres? Well, not quite. Each transaction uses about the same amount of water as a backyard swimming pool. Yes, that's right. It's according to a study published in the journal Cell Reports Sustainability. And the study's author is Digiconomist Alex DeVries. A lot of times people forget that not just the fact that you have to cool your own devices, you're also consuming electricity. And in order to generate that electricity, you also need water. If you're in a coal or gas plant, you also need water to keep your generators cool. Then it's an indirect water consumption from a Bitcoin miner perspective, but it's still adding to their water footprint because they are consuming that electricity, which required a lot of water to be produced in the first place. Uh, That is with regard to coal and gas, but actually hydropower, if you happen to be using that, typically has an even bigger water footprint associated with it. And then people think about, okay, how does that work? Because you have a reservoir and you're using water, but you're not cooling anything. And the water is, (laughs) you don't have to cool a thing. But then the thing is that water also evaporates from the reservoirs itself. And you can actually, or you're even supposed to attribute 
that evaporation to the electricity that's being generated from the hydropower dam that you're working with. Right. Got the, I'm just getting such a picture of how thorough your audit of this process has been, because I'd have just thought, yeah, sure, there's water cooling going on in the in the data center. I hadn't even thought about evaporation in the hydroelectric power stations. In fact, my yeah. next question was going to be, aha, but what about hydroelectric? And yeah. you're like, yeah, no, <laughs> this is this actually is <laughs> yeah. water intensive as well. And I, this can get very complicated very quickly, I know. But can you just give us the quick lay guide to why it is that crypto mining is so energy intensive and therefore water intensive in the first place? Ultimately, it all comes down to the way the underlying blockchain technology works and how this network of computers that is ultimately operating independently, there is no centralized authority in Bitcoin. That That is the whole thing of the network. There's no one in charge of Bitcoin. It's a distributed network where all the participants somehow have to align on the current state of the underlying blockchain. And the blockchain is just a ledger of transactions. And ultimately, Bitcoin is a peer-to-peer payment system this process of aligning you can do it in many different ways but the way they do it in bitcoin is with what is known as proof of work and we commonly refer to that as mining now a lot of times that is explained in a really complicated way but what it ultimately comes down to is like a selection of who gets to create the next block for the blockchain. That's all there is to it. And how do you make that process work? Well, you make all these computers that are participating in this network play a game of guess the number. That's that's it. And they are just 24-7, all these mining devices, playing a really massive game of guess the number, trying to guess a certain predetermined winning number. And the one that gets it correctly gets to create the next block for the blockchain. Now, on average, that one winner will be coming out every 10 minutes. Uh, So the difficulty of guessing the right number is automatically adjusted to kind of keep that interval steady. And the amount of processing power in the network is so high that all of these machines are making, actually today, I think around 500 quintillion guesses every second of the day nonstop. And that number is so unfathomably large. I mean, you're talking about 500 with 18 zeros behind it. (laughs) Uh, I wouldn't even know how to put that in any type of comparison, but I think people will quickly realize that in order to produce that many computations, you need a whole lot of power and the, the the nasty thing is that all of those computations are immediately thrown out i mean like i mentioned there can only be one single winner every 10 minutes that one is recorded on the blockchain all the others 500 quintillion every second of the day is completely useless information it's just thrown out right away can't reuse it it's not like an ai model where it gets stored somewhere you can actually do something with it no it's just thrown out so what is it saying? Because you have this eye-watering claim, this eye-watering stat relating Bitcoin transactions or a single Bitcoin transactions to swimming pools, don't you? So yeah, <laughs> hit yeah, me yeah. with this. What's this crazy statistic you've come up with? Yeah, well, what it ultimately comes down to is that per transaction that is being processed on the Bitcoin blockchain, on average, a residential size swimming pool will just evaporate. A residential size swimming pool worth of freshwater, to be specifically. <laughs> per, so, so for, for one single Bitcoin transaction. 
Exactly. You're talking about around 16,000 liters of water. Oh my Lord. Uh, yeah, so, on average. That's insane, isn't it? Yeah. And, and to put it into even more perspective, uh, we can actually come up with a, a number for regular uh, cashless transactions as well, just using conventional currencies. Uh, some other researchers did that earlier in the year. And uh, uh, they found that on average for a, a regular cashless transaction, so maybe a credit card swipe, the amount of water that's being consumed is maybe 2.6 milliliters, 2.7 milliliters. So uh, that's 16,000 liters versus 2.67 milliliters. So oh. it's a, there's, a fa- there's a factor 6.2 million times difference in the amount of water that's being consumed. Final question then, what do we do about all this? You have all this data, surely it can end up on the desks of um, policymakers, hopefully maybe even the Bitcoin mining operations. I don't know. What do we do with this data? Policymakers are are working on on this topic. Like for example, in the EU, uh, the new MiCar regulation, markets and crypto asset regulation, is actually introducing some transparency requirements. I think a better thing you could be doing is actually making a change to the Bitcoin software to get rid of this energy intensive mining altogether. Uh, a lot of people won't even realize that this is totally a valid option and this can actually happen. In fact, we have seen this happen in the second largest crypto asset in the market last year, Ethereum. They were also running on a similar proof of work mining mechanism that is currently still being used in Bitcoin. But last year, they updated their software in such a way that this mining mechanism was completely replaced with an alternative that's known as proof of stake. Well, that's a very uh, interesting term. What it comes down to is that they changed the way in which they align on the current state of their blockchain by doing away with the computational power and making that alignment dependent on how much wealth you can put up as collateral in the staking process. So um, effectively, their selection process in their blockchain is now based on participants putting up a certain amount of wealth as collateral and then the algorithm randomly selecting one of the stakers to produce the next block for the blockchain. And they still get a reward for that. So it's still a random selection. You still get a reward for it. Not a whole lot changed, except you don't need computational power anymore at all. And by removing that, they cut their power requirement by 99.85% at the very least. And that means not just their power requirement, but everything related yeah, to that including as well. Including the water. And the carbon footprint yeah. water as well. They, had, they don't have those devices, electronic waste. It's all gone. And, and it was gone overnight. That's Alex de Vries. And it was very easy, Pete. I managed to avoid it to go into that item saying these are eye-watering figures because <laughs> they, they literally are, but I thought that would be too much of an obvious water pun. Um, so we heard there maybe a bit of a good news story around Ethereum and a different way of avoiding all this water. But what about in the main body of that interview where um, Alex was just wanging around all those absolutely crazy... I'm trying not to say eye-watering, but mm. crazy statistics. Quite, and I think... It is really instructive to think about the sheer scale of the operations we're talking about. I went out to see some of these in Kazakhstan a couple of years ago, and they are just massive. You know, we're talking oh, about so these facilities, facilities, the, the data centers themselves. Yeah. You know, the data centers themselves. We're talking about these these warehouses in the middle of nowhere on these estates that are just the size of a small airport. You know, massive hangars, enormous amounts of machines. The noise is like like the rush of a jet engine. You know, you've got these rows of transformers crackling with electricity, smoke stacks and chimneys, and just trains a mile long bringing coal into the power stations. It's like a, it's a factory, but 
depending on your point of view, the maybe factories that aren't actually producing anything. Well, you do wonder, because they're just doing the, I say just, but it's the, the whole crypto side of things, isn't it? Sol- solving these crazy bits of equations and mathematics to in effect, effectively guess a random number. And I've been reporting on this long enough to know that we've now stepped up to beyond industrial scale with crypto. And at the same time, when I imagine that computing, I still can't help thinking about somebody who's just got maybe a cluster of very powerful computers in a basement somewhere. And it's amazing to hear, and I read your piece when you did that investigation at the time, just to see the infrastructure. To Even to read about it secondhand was phenomenal, let alone actually being there. So, And then thinking about the amount of water that's being used as well. Exactly. The amount of extraction in general that's going on. And it is really interesting to think about Bitcoin. I'm, I'm glad we talked about Ethereum as well to show the sort of contrast between what you need to do and what is just being done. But I think Bitcoin, Bitcoin's a really easy thing for us to look at and say, well, this just looks a bit pointless. I don't really understand why why this amount of energy goes into it. But data centers are part of the infrastructure of pretty much everything we do in tech. Like every transaction that you make, every email you send, there's a cost to that. And I think Bitcoin is a really good way of illustrating that that cost is something that's felt in, in in energy, but in water and in other commodities. Yeah, and of course, Bitcoin mining operations often are near and need to be near a water source as well, which might be something that we tend to forget because they need reservoirs of the stuff, really. So, yeah, absolutely. Like they are like a factory, right? You have to put them where there's power and where there's water which means yeah. they're competing with everybody else around them for those resources. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, we'll hear a little bit later in the podcast Extra, the subscription version of this podcast from Alex DeVries about that alternative model. We heard there he was talking about the proof of stake concept behind Ethereum, which is a whole other paradigm for generating uh, crypto. And uh, he, you know, one of the questions I had for him is like, well, couldn't Bitcoin just do that? And he had a really interesting answer. So it's a bit of a teaser for you, isn't it? But Hopefully that's a little bit of um, incentive to um, subscribe to this podcast. It's um, 10 US dollars a month. And uh, if you want to go and find it, just uh, go to our um, to our podcast hosting platform, Buzzsprout. And then you just Google basically Buzzsprout Somewhere on Earth podcast subscription. And then it takes you to a page. It's a bit clunky, but you'll get there and you'll make us very happy if, uh, if we do. So, um, so, yeah, clearly a few thoughts there about water use in crypto and means of avoiding it and uh, on the subject of data centers not specifically about water in this case but it's still kind of relevant this uh, message from matthew scrobelli put this up on our um uh, Facebook group. And uh, Matthew says, on the energy usage of data centres, it's not a zero-sum game. So this is more talking about the energy side of things from Matthew. He says, as uh, more services go online, the energy formerly used by equipment that we all used to own, well, that goes away. Take DVDs, for instance. Once upon a time, people got into the car and drove to a blockbuster. And of course, it took energy to drive and then also to make and use the DVD player. Now all of that has gone, says Matthew. Take digital transfer of documents. Once upon a time, people wrote letters and mailed them. Then that evolved into fax machines. And now, of course, many of us email or in some other way, we send the same documents electronically. In both of these cases, continues to argue Matthew, um, this data has to be stored somewhere. Movies and TV shows take up huge amounts of space and everyone's streaming. So there are oodles of copies of the media located close by to you. 
Yet there are so many more individual documents that we all keep in our email and in our in and out boxes that are stored in the cloud at data centers. The same goes with the Somewhere on Earth podcast. So yes, we, we don't get out of this lightly either from Matthew. Um, the podcast is stored in data centers. Here on my side of the pond in North America, says Matthew, local people fight data centers because they don't want them in their backyard. Of course, these people, they're all sending email, they're using Netflix, Amazon Prime, and of course, this is Matthew saying this, but I like that he is and of course listening to the somewhere on earth podcast i'll leave you with a picture of steam rising from the data centers in ashburn virginia taken from 12 miles away about two weeks ago uh, i guess what i'm saying here says matthew as he shares a picture of these data centers and you can see the steam rising in the distance what i'm saying is that we're all in this together so we're all part of the problem i suppose you know coming back to the water usage side of things yeah if you're using bitcoin then that does kind of make you part of the problem something to think about so yeah that's easy i think matthew's making a, a very good point although i would challenge it on one one small point which is when we look at generative ai which is a requiring a dramatic step change in the amount of data centers we need it could be like four times as much for a query let's say on a search engine so you may look for somewhere on earth podcast and your current search engine of choice will deliver that with one unit of energy and water mm. once they've integrated generative ai into that search it may take four times as much to generate the yes. same amount the email that you've been talking about you send the email and you write all the text yourself just having the suggestions in front of that generated by ai could mean that there's four or five times the amount of energy going into that email that was before now are you getting four or five times the amount of utility out of that and yeah. that's the question Oh, of course. There must be a way of switching that off because it's just come onto my email just quite recently, the autocomplete thing. And sometimes I, I just haven't got used to using it. Maybe I should just not get used to using it and switch it off and save a whole load of um, AI processor cycles. Wow. Is it too late for New Year's tech resolutions, I ask myself? Such a good point, though. And I know that Alex DeVries, the researcher we just heard there, um, has written about that as well. Um, all right. Well, how about this for an idea? You know, again, staying on the water theme here. A mini desalination plant in a suitcase how about that and we're not talking about a massive plant here for an entire city this is just where perhaps a few people might need some clean drinking water and all they have is seawater to hand well now mit researchers have come up with a prototype portable desalination system powered just by energy from the sun and essentially, it just creates little eddies in the salt water to get it swishing around a bit. And then the solar energy evaporates that water and it leaves behind the salt. And then the salt-free vapour, that condenses back into water. And instead of just doing that on one surface, this system, if you can imagine it, is kind of stacked up in layers. So then that multiplies the effect. It multiplies the desalination capacity. So-called passive desalination has been around for thousands of years, but the MIT team have become the latest to refine the idea to work a bit more efficiently, quite a lot more efficiently, as I've been hearing from Lenan Zhang, a research scientist at MIT's Device Research Lab. Stay with us. We'll be right back. AI is changing the game of business. Will you be on the winning team? I'm Jordan Wilson, the host of the Everyday AI podcast and your coach to help you learn the X's and O's of AI. Artificial intelligence isn't just a new player in the game, it's a new sport altogether. So if you don't quickly put AI into play, your competitors will run up the score. I've spent my whole life building winning teams from coaching basketball to working with big players like Nike and Jordan brand. My next move 
helping you win with Everyday AI. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or on everydayaipodcast.com. Let's tap into AI together and put points on the board. So in the first layer, the solar energy is converted to heat and then dry water evaporation. And then on the back side of the first layer, the water vapor condense. So once the water vapor condense, you get the clean, no salt at all, like drinking water. But meanwhile, this condensation process releases thermal energy because when you have vapor, it condensed to the liquid. So this natural phenomena gives you some like re- releasing of a huge amount of energy known as latent heat. And then this latent heat, we didn't like dissipate it into environment. But we just collect all this latent heat, this released energy, and transport it into the second layer. And in the second layer, same phenomena happen again. So this heat drives the water evaporation, and the evaporated water condense on the back side of the second layer. And then the latent heat released again, and to drive the evaporation on the third layer. So basically, that's why like you see this layer, layer, layer stacked structure with a compact like a configuration. So this is a, you know, like the trick we want to play to recycle the solar energy and boost the water production. Yeah. So you're only using the energy from the sun. The whole thing seems very simple, but it's uh, it's mechanical engineering that you're doing yeah. here, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. which would be about right, because you're in a mechanical engineering department. Yeah. And the other crucial thing is you're talking about, say, five or six litres of water. So this would be to go in a suitcase when you've eventually gone from prototype mm-hmm. to something that you could manufacture. So we're not talking about something that's a desalination solution for whole cities. This is like a personalised, desalination thing for people who are traveling or in other kind of situations where they don't have ready access Mm -hmm. to drinkable water yeah recently we believe it may be more useful for some emergency like condition for example some area is suffered from the natural disaster so like it's in the power shut down and in the some like recovering process i think the one of the most important things they, they need is a reliable and uh, and like safe drinking water because many people cannot have access to energy and clean water then like this portable device which can produce significant amount of water with low cost but also very stable has some like uh, you know like unique features like suitable for this application situation so this some like thing like in our mind maybe this device in the future can make impact in addition to that like uh, it's hard to beat like this commercial uh, large scale desalination plant but uh, it can be a complementary part because a uh, conventional uh, desalination plant you know like uh, get uh, seawater in but reject the salty water and uh, clean water. So the salty water, if you directly reject into back into the ocean, this can have some like environmental concern. But based on our configuration, like this device can take the high salinity or hypersaline brine rejected from existing part, like water plant, desalination plant, and then re-extract more clean water to get higher uh, clean water recovery. And then we can just the final step, just evaporate all the remaining water to remain the salt. So this approach is called zero liquid discharge. So 
This can ensure we have no hypersaline brine being rejected back to the ocean. And this is also protection to our eco and environmental system. Right. So given this very contemporary refinement to a centuries old uh, concept of passive desalination, what about moving this technology into active desalination where you're putting energy in, you're using a process called osmosis? It is ridiculously energy intensive. I remember doing a program about desalination a long time ago go back in my BBC days uh, and a big problem is the energy requirement could you potentially adapt this technology to make active desalination plants that could be feeding entire cities to make them more efficient yeah that that is possible so the key part is just the thermal desalination. We can use any energy source. For example, like uh, more than industry, more than like a factory, they produce a lot of waste heat. This called we call low grade waste heat. With low temperature, it's hard to drive anything, but just dissipate to the environment. So if we can get access to this low grade heat or electricity, we can further boost the water production rate because even the low-grade heat is much more intensive than solar, than the dilute sun flux. So this can definitely be beneficial for the boost of the water production rate and uh, can be adaptable to the modern like power, like water grid and uh, this like water production cycle. And how much solar power does this need to be successful and efficient? I mean, I'm just wondering, is this basically only going to work in places like the Red Sea, not necessarily the North Sea? I think it can work uh, everywhere, but the higher solar floods give you a higher water production rate. So we are testing in a, just a standard like condition. For example, we call it one sun. One sun means uh, 1,000 watt per meter square. So this is a quite standard solar floods we are experiencing on the surface of the Earth. So that's why that we never concentrate solar power, we never manipulate solar power, just uh, use the uh, natural sunlight to power the system to get some water production. Lenan Zhang there. And um, what a neat little idea there, Pete. So kind of potentially, you know, when they've perfected this prototype, a desalination plant in a suitcase, reusing, repurposing, developing on this age-old centuries idea of passive desalination. So how did that land with you? I think, as you say, it's the, it's the scale, it's the portability of it, which is so fascinating and so useful. I think, you know, we often see the kind of aftermaths of um, of natural disasters, and we see them increasingly, particularly in kind of coastal areas. And you see this these kind of trucks full with water, trucks filled with plastic bottles full of water being shipped in, huge cost, hugely hugely complicated. I mean, this is the kind of thing that could like really change that circumstance on the ground very quickly. Mm. And I was really struck in the interview about some of the innovations that could stem from this initial device that we heard there from Lenan. You know, the idea that, um, for instance, it can take um, heat energy from other sources, maybe from industrialization, maybe even from bad Bitcoin <laughs> and crypto mining operations, and at least use that heat for something useful, which can be part of a kind of, uh, uh, you know, a way of either replacing or supplementing the solar energy in desalination. So they've got a f- load of ideas for this technology. It sounds obviously it's a prototype. There's a way to go before they um, uh, fully refine it into something. But uh, I was really struck by that. And uh, I can imagine, as you were saying there, kind of relief efforts, you know, in the aftermath of disasters, Pete, where this might be useful. So what about other settings where you could imagine this, you know, I suppose, just wherever you need drinking water? 
Well, yeah, exactly. And where there happens to be a bit of sunshine. Oh, well, quite. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that I've been fascinated by at a personal level in the last few years is the, is the kind of proliferation of these incredible cities in the Gulf and, and in, yeah. you know, on the fringes of the desert and the sea. And one of the, you know, the ch- huge challenges there is going to be water. And in some ways, they're actually pushing the technology forward just by necessity. But we're, we're all going to be in those situations, aren't we? At some point, too, just the world heats up. We're all going to be closer to the edges of, of kind of livability. And so those places where they're trialing this technology, where they're you know experimenting with this kind of stuff, they're kind of leading, leading the way for where we're all going to end up here, isn't it? Well, so it goes. So it seems to be. Um, Pete, thank you very much indeed for that. Um, so there you go. That'll do for this edition. But of course, we will carry on in the um, subscription version. You're going to hear a bit more from Alex de Vries talking about uh, different models for uh, crypto that can involve using less water or maybe even eliminate the need for water cooling altogether that's coming up in the subscription version and a bit more chat from uh, pete and i and anything else we get up to and if you're leaving us right now then of course we'll be back next time Uh, but before you fully go do make sure that you've noted our whatsapp won't you program it into your phone so it's code 447486329484 i know i'm always banging on about leaving a voice note you can just leave like a normal text whatsapp by the way that is not illegal um but uh you know if you if you're sending us a message we love hearing your voice but we'll leave that up to you um our email is hello at somewhere on earth audio this week has been by the almighty Keziah Wenham Kenyon and the equally almighty Dylan Burton here at Lanson's Team Farner the production manager is Liz Tui the editor's Annie Littero which you've been hearing from Pete Guest today and I'm just some bloke called Gareth bye bye